One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 142, Brave in Danger. Last time we discussed the first year of the reign of the Emperor John Zimiskis. Having murdered Nicephorus Phocas, John would have been expecting a difficult first year in office. His worst case scenario would have been civil war breaking out at the same time as a foreign invasion. Not only did he get exactly that, but by the end of the year he was looking at war in East and West simultaneously. Let's dive right into the fray. To combat the Rus' incursions into Thrace, John had sent his closest ally, Bardas Sclerus, with about 10,000 men. While they were engaged in battle, Messengers arrived at the capital with the news that Bardas Phocas had escaped his house arrest and had been proclaimed emperor. Civil wars always take precedence for Roman emperors over foreign invasion. Why? Because Avasilefs could be confident that an enemy siege will be wholeheartedly resisted by the people of Constantinople. But when it's one of their own at the gates... Who knows who you can trust? So Zimiskis recalled Skliros and his army, leaving Thrace undefended. Fortunately for the Romans, the Rus did not march on the capital. Unfortunately for the civilians of the area, they did continue raiding the countryside before heading home. Bardas Phocas was the son of Leo Phocas. He'd been named after his grandfather, the famous general, and was obviously the nephew of the late emperor, Nicephorus. He was serving as a commander on the Eastern Front when John took power and was held on an estate in the Armenia Con for the first half of 970. Last episode, I said that the Byzantine army largely accepted John's usurpation. And that's true. The major concentration of troops were on the borders. Uh, Melitene, Tarsus, Antioch, and so on. None of those units rose against Simiskis. However, behind them, there were soldiers garrisoning other towns and strong points, and, of course, the reservoir of inactive or retired theme soldiers. Naturally, within the focus heartlands of Cappadocia, there was resistance. 
But without an actual focus to rally behind, there would be no revolt. So a group of officers and relatives of Bardas saddled up, rode north to Amasia, and broke him out of his incarceration. They then travelled south, spreading news of the rebellion, and when Bardas reached Caesarea, where Nicephorus had been hailed as emperor seven years earlier, he received the same honour. Men flocked to the Phocas banner, and once a few thousand had come together, Bardas marched them straight toward Constantinople. As news of these sensational events made their way across the empire, they reached the receptive ears of Bardas's father and brother on the island of Lesbos. Leo saw the opportunity immediately. The two of them could steal a boat and reach the European shore. Then he could make contact with the theme armies there and rally them to his banner. Surrounded by armies in east and west, Zimis Keys would be forced to flee, and the Focus family would return to power. But even as this vision glimmered before the Focards, it was being snuffed out. Imperial agents caught Leo and his son trying to escape, and sentenced them to death. Meanwhile, Bardas's army came face to face with Scleros at Dorileum, the nearest army mustering ground to the Bosphorus. The magnate families had all intermarried, so Scleros's brother was married to Phocas's sister. Scleros played on this and begged the rebel to engage in diplomacy before doing anything foolish. Phocas agreed, and the two camps exchanged letters. But when it became clear that Phocas wouldn't stand down, Scleros sent men dressed as beggars into his camp. These agents spread the word that there were big rewards waiting for anyone who switched to the emperor's side. A trickle became a stream, and soon Bardas Phocas was fleeing east, his rebellion having melted away. Scleros gave chase, trapped him in a fortress, and negotiated his surrender. Zimiskis's kindness to the family he'd overthrown was overwhelming. Bardas was forced to join the priesthood and exiled to live on the island of Chios, but was otherwise left unharmed and allowed to take his wife and child with him. Meanwhile, the emperor also commuted the death sentence of Leo and his other son, leaving them unharmed too, an extraordinary act of leniency in keeping with Zimiskis' generous nature. This rebellion might seem pretty typical. Emperor is overthrown and his family fight to retake the capital. But Nicephorus was not actually the legitimate Vasilefs, nor did his family carry any imperial titles. They had no particular right to rule, given the Macedonian house was still resident in the palace. Antony Caldellus argues that this was actually the first time that a relative of the emperors claimed the throne through a sense of family entitlement. 
In other words, the magnate clan of the Focats were trying to ensure their continued dominance of the state, rather than pushing a dynastic claim as such. Magnates and their status will be an end-of-the-century topic. In response to the Civil War and talk of legitimacy, John decided to remarry. Like Nicephorus before him, John was a widower, leaving him open to marry a Macedonian bride. The woman chosen was Theodora, a daughter of Constantine the uh, one of the sisters of Romanus II, who was packed off to a nunnery when he became emperor. Theodora would have been about 25, John was 45. The wedding was popular with the people of the capital, and Zimiskis made it clear that if any children were conceived, they would rank below the Macedonian princes. Uh, also, like Nicephorus, John had no surviving offspring from his first marriage. Once the celebrations were over, Zimiskis was totally focused on the Balkans. He spent the winter drilling his troops relentlessly in preparation for a full campaign in Bulgaria. He actually created a new elite cavalry corps to serve alongside him, which he named the Immortals. His plan was to march north into Bulgaria and to eject the Rus from their new home. As we talked about last episode, this was the overriding priority of Byzantine foreign policy. They could not allow a rival naval power to set up shop on the shores of the Black Sea. I know that there's a lot of information to absorb when listening to the history of Byzantium, and with so many names and dates it can become a blur. It's worth taking a pause now and again to put yourself in the shoes of someone living at the time. For the average citizen of Constantinople in 970 AD, the Rus were a far bigger threat than the Arabs. Yes, of course everyone knew about the Arabs and Islam. Arab prisoners were visible in Constantinople. and They were the ancestral enemy by this time and victories over them were cheered wildly in the streets. But the last time that Saracen forces had menaced the capital, at least psychologically, was 838, the sack of Memoriam. The idea of the Arabs threatening your safety wasn't even something your grandparents would have talked about anymore. Whereas the Rus, well, they sacked the suburbs in 860, in 907, and in 941. Now that was within living memory. They had landed troops in Bithynia and torn the place to pieces. People you knew, friends, acquaintances, had suffered, or at least been terrified, by that. As Zimiskis and his cavalry raced around their training grounds that winter, the pressure mounted on them to drive away this looming menace. Extra pressure was hardly what John needed, given his own rule remained precarious. 
And, of course, campaigning in the Balkans had been a nightmare for most Roman emperors for the past three centuries. Think about that for a moment. The Bulgars arrived in the 670s. It's been 300 years, and the Byzantines have been incapable of shifting them. Even when Nicephorus I sacked their capital, they managed to ambush and massacre his army. Since the Battle of Pliska a century and a half ago, Roman policy has tended toward accepting the Bulgarians as permanent neighbours. The Rus were in some ways more powerful, and they'd just taken over that country in one campaign. The Romans may have swept all before them in the east, but that did not simply transfer to the Balkans. The Taurus Mountains had been thoroughly scouted and populated with allies before the Byzantines could make any headway through them. Nothing like that existed in Bulgaria. There was every chance that Zimiskis would be trapped in a defile and trampled to death, as had happened to so many of the followers of Sefadola. Nevertheless, Zimiskis had called up a large army and was preparing to set off when the final straw arrived. Just before Easter 971, messengers came to the palace to announce that Antioch was under siege by forces of the Fatimid Caliph of Egypt. There is so much to get through today that we don't even have time to address what was going on in the East or what John did about it. But just bear in mind that as he contemplated the extremely dangerous campaign he was embarking on, he also had to deal with an Eastern attack. This was about the most precarious scenario an emperor could face. John was leaving the capital, possibly for months, in itself an invitation to be overthrown. He was marching into a war zone that had destroyed many of his predecessors, and now the eastern conquests that had built his reputation were under threat. The pressure was truly on. The biggest hurdle facing John's campaign were the Hemus Mountains themselves. Few Romans had crossed them in the past three centuries. They knew the dangers that lay in bringing a full army through. Numerical superiority is cancelled out by the narrow paths, and panic can destroy the most competent of units. But Zimiskis knew something. He marched his army north and ordered them to cross immediately. As scouts nervously made their way through the rocks, they were surprised to find no paths were blocked off. No enemy patrols were visible. The mountains seemed to be unguarded. The 20,000-strong army made its way safely through the passes and began the march towards Preslav. In many ways, this moment was the key to the whole war. Why on earth had Sviatoslav left the mountains without proper garrisons? This had been the key to Bulgarian strategy for their entire existence. It can't be that the Rus prince was ignorant of this. He had many Bulgarians serving under him. According to our main Byzantine source, 
the Rus did not think the Romans would invade during Easter, that the emperor would be too preoccupied with services in Constantinople to engage in war during it, which sounds pretty flimsy. Another possibility is that there was a Bulgarian uprising which needed to be dealt with. This would be a very logical reason for the Rus to mass their forces elsewhere, but there is no evidence to point to that. It's also been suggested that Zimiskis actually agreed to a truce the previous year when the Phokas Rebellion broke out. If true, that could explain the absence of defences, though it would still be foolish of Sviatoslav to take their word for it. Uh, But this idea does seem to have support from John's decision to go straight for the central passes that led toward the Bulgarian capital. If he'd thought the passes would be guarded, then surely he would have stuck to the coast road. And the fact that the truce isn't mentioned in Byzantine histories could be because truce-breaking was a dishonourable move. Whatever the truth, John was known for bold, swift attacks on the enemy, and that's exactly what he did now. He left the infantry, siege engines, and camp followers with Basil Le Capinos and told them to advance slowly north. The emperor took the cavalry and sped forwards to catch the enemy unaware. As his cavalry appeared outside Preslav, a blast of trumpets warned the Rus that they were under attack. They came running and gave battle in the fields outside the city, which was a foolish choice. The Byzantine cavalry included the cream of the armies who'd just ravaged Syria. They were skilled and disciplined, and given room to manoeuvre, they overwhelmed the combined Rus-Bulgar force. Hundreds were left dead on the grass as the rest fled for the safety of the city. A day or so later, Basil arrived with the rest of the army. They surrounded the city and assaulted it. The walls were easily breached and civilians and soldiers fled. However, the central units of the Rus' army retreated to the imperial palace and blockaded the doors. Showing fierce resistance, Zimiskis decided to set fire to the building to speed up their surrender. Preslav had replaced Pliska as the Bulgarian capital about 80 years earlier, designed to give the Tsars a new Christian home to stand proudly in the face of Constantinople. The chaos of the Rus' takeover had left it vulnerable and the Romans had taken it with ease. John would soon rename the city after himself to mark this unexpectedly swift triumph. Amongst those who surrendered was Boris, the Tsar, son of Peter, son of Simeon. He had spent some time in Constantinople as a hostage before he inherited the throne, He knew the Byzantines, and at this point was probably glad to see them. John treated him with honour as a fellow Christian monarch, and may have indicated that his intention was to drive out the Rus and put Boris back on the throne. The capture 
of Preslav changed the mood inside Bulgaria. As hated as the Romans were, many Bulgarians began defecting to them as Zimisky's celebrated Easter in his new surroundings. More would follow as he marched north. Sviatoslav was holed up inside the fortress of Dristra on the Danube. You can see it on the map I've posted for this episode. This was the furthest north a Roman army had been in three centuries. Naturally, John was concerned about security and his supply lines. Various key forts surrendered or were taken en route, and the imperial fleet was sailing in support, 300 ships apparently, packed with supplies and reinforcements, and they were making their way to the mouth of the Danube as John reached Tristra. John had staked everything on this. He had to destroy the Rus position and return home victorious. Our sources tell us that the Romans were outnumbered by the Rus force waiting for them on the river, but this clearly isn't true. Sviatoslav never came out very far from his fortifications, and Zimiskis would hardly have travelled hundreds of miles from his home to take on a fight he could easily lose. It's doubtful that the Rus could afford all the mercenaries who they'd hired for the initial invasion of Bulgaria. Most likely they were down to a corps of ten to 15,000 men, and the vast majority of them were infantry. The Rus were tough foot soldiers, ferocious and determined with sword and large shield. But they lacked the heavy armor of the Romans, the discipline and training, and, of course, the cataphracts. As the Romans approached Dristra, Sviatoslav became paranoid about the loyalty of the Bulgarian nobles serving alongside him. Allegedly, he massacred a few hundred of them for fear of a fifth column. He then took his forces out of the gates and arrayed them in a long line to face the Romans. Zimiskis hoped to win a swift victory and so agreed to battle immediately. He split his army into three divisions. His infantry took the centre with cataphracts on each wing. At midday, the two sides made contact. According to our eyewitness, the Romans did break through the Rus shield wall on several occasions, but the Rus were always able to retreat and reform their line. By mid-afternoon, stalemate had set in, and John ordered the cataphracts to charge. Their silent, deadly canter had the desired effect. They shattered the enemy wings, and the Rus broke and fled. Many were cut down as they rushed through the gates of Dristra, but most got home safely, and the doors were shut on the advancing Byzantines. Though the Romans were victorious, they were now looking at a prolonged siege, deep in enemy territory. The fleet made their way up the river and dropped anchor nearby. They would keep up a continuous patrol, trying to stop the Rus escaping or being reinforced. 
John ordered a full military camp to be constructed nearby, which would be his home for the next three months. During that time, his siege engines bombarded the enemy, but this did little to change the situation, and attempts to scale the walls were rebuffed. The Rus did make sorties, but they were also unsuccessful. Even when they could push the Roman infantry back, they were always faced with cavalry that they couldn't match. As the weeks passed, the Rus became increasingly desperate. A group of men decided to run the naval blockade and took small boats out on a dark night in search of food. Not only did they succeed, but on their way home they ran into some Romans watering their horses by the river. They fell on them and raced back to Dristra, excited with tales of their small victory. John was furious and yelled at his naval officers about the importance of constant vigilance. Sviatoslav seized on this morale boost to make a last stand. It was now July 971, and the Rus marched out in force for one final battle. This time, though, they lined up right outside their fortifications. John remained determined to break them in combat rather than continue the siege, and so marched his army out to meet them. However, by remaining in front of the walls, the Rus had found a way to negate the cavalry. There just wasn't room for the horses to manoeuvre, and so close to the river, the ground was boggy, making riding even harder. What followed was a tactical victory for the Rus. They lined up their infantry in tight formation, almost a phalanx, and made it as hard as possible for the Romans to close in on them. Suffering casualties and recognizing the situation for what it was, Zemiskis gave the order for his men to slowly withdraw, drawing the Rus out onto the wider plain. Naturally, the Roman infantry began to take nasty wounds as they retreated, and the Northmen could not turn down this opportunity. The Rus surged forward, driving the enemy in front of them. This was the moment of truth. In the hot summer sun, the heavily armoured Byzantines were suffering. John had orderlies carrying water up and down the line, but a tactical withdrawal can quickly become a rout. And as his men began to waver, Zimiskis joined the fray himself. The immortals had been held in reserve for a moment just like this. And John, always brave in danger, charged the Rus wing, broke through, and sent them fleeing back to safety. To cap the victory, Bardas Skliros, who was leading another cavalry wing, sped on ahead and hit the retreating Rus in the flanks. The rout became a massacre. Thousands now lay dead, and Sviatoslav duly sued for peace. John was in a typically accommodating mood. He knew that the Rus remained both a threat and a valuable ally on the steppes. So he offered to allow them safe passage home, with grain rations, and the restoration of the previous trade treaty. 
All they had to do was promise not to menace Bulgaria or Cherson ever again, and to hand over all the booty, prisoners, and fortresses they had taken. Sviatoslav agreed, and asked to meet John in person. Zemiskis sat on his horse in full armour, while the Rus prince arrived in a rowing boat. Our eyewitness tells us that Sviatoslav had a moustache and was otherwise shaved bald except for one long lock of hair that hung down from the side of his head. He wore all white and a gold earring and chatted to John through an interpreter for a short while before leaving. This was a supreme victory for the Romans. It was different from their success in the East. In many ways, it was easier. Uh, They were never tested by horse archers, heavy cavalry, or the heat of the Middle Eastern sun. But they were logistically much more stretched. They did not have a series of carefully scouted fortresses and passes under their control. The situation was far more variable, and therefore the possibilities for disaster were harder to determine. But Zimiskis had succeeded. I don't even have time today to talk about the extent of his triumph, but needless to say, John had a reputation for darting into danger in the hopes of securing exciting success. And once again, fortune had favoured the bold. To be fair to Sviatoslav, he had been equally bold. The attempt to move his entire realm hundreds of miles was the work of a visionary. He was willing to sacrifice almost everything for the sake of escaping the Dnieper Rapids, those cataracts that forced him to move through Pecheneg territory every summer. In a rare moment for the history of Byzantium, the Rus prince provides us with a perfect TV drama conclusion. For on his way home, he was forced to negotiate those very rapids, and as he did, the remnants of his army were surrounded by a tribe of Pachenegs. Negotiations failed, and the Rus attempted to break through the blockade. In the pitched battle that followed, the Northmen were massacred, and Sviatoslav was amongst the dead. In death, his point was proven beyond doubt. But his people would naturally conclude that travelling west was not worth attempting again. Next time, John has to deal with the eastern invasion and another focus uprising, as well as the question of what to do with Bulgaria. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.